Thank you very much for the very kind introduction. My name is Hiro. Uh, I'm a partner, general partner at a fund called Atomico. We are based in London, uh, and as Fadi has said, we globally invest into uh, technology opportunities in, in most places around the world. Uh, we're in Brazil, we're in Japan, we're in Europe, uh, and we're in the US as well. Um, not yet in MENA and GCC, but we have friends like uh, Fadi and the WAMI group who we feel like will be the future of the region, and they will find great opportunities. So anyway, thank you for having me, and it's a privilege to be here to speak to you. So today, I thought I'd cover something that is probably relevant to all of us in the room. It's, it's obviously very relevant to a fund like us, who, you know, we, our philosophy and premise is around investing outside of Silicon Valley. We all know that, you know, it's a very important place. There's a lot of capital, there's a lot of, you know, talent, but what are the opportunities and what does the world look like outside of the valley in, in the form of technology investment? So, you know, why we believe it's the best time, it's the golden age of investing in technology outside of the valley. I think I'd like to give you some perspective on what we've witnessed in terms of this relentless march of technology and what this means for companies, both incumbent companies and technology companies. And uh, finally, spend some time talking about some of the trends and things that we're seeing around the world in terms of the next wave of technology. So these are the things that I'd like to cover um, in this session. So again, you know, we talked a little bit about the firm. Atomico was founded in 2006. Uh, there was a very clear vision at the time, and, and it kind of relates back to the fact that many of us, including my partner, was a co-founder of Skype. You know, we were seeing, as a, as a product, you know, if you look at a lot of technology companies today, they're scaling in international markets, but again, it's very hard to scale in international markets. At the time, Skype was in over 130 countries. So what that gave us was a privileged vantage point to look and to interact with entrepreneurs and, and you know, great ideas and great companies in all parts of the world. And at that point, I think it became very clear that although there isn't a developed ecosystem in the valley, you know, there was this huge opportunity that was emerging, even outside of the obvious, like China. There was huge opportunity in these local tech ecosystems that great entrepreneurs and, and great companies would be formed. Now, to be clear, great entrepreneurs have been coming from these places for decades and decades. So this is nothing really that new. But I think technology and the way technology was evolving, we thought that the opportunity set would be quite huge uh, going forward. So. That's where we set off uh, building Atomico. We basically have a few things in common with I think Fadi and Wanda, which is we're very entrepreneur driven in our ethos. Um, you know, as opposed to being purely fund managers, I think there's a symbiotic relationship with the ecosystem of entrepreneurs and, and startups and fund managers. So I think we've taken the route uh, and not to say that that's the only route, but we've taken the route of being entrepreneur friendly and mindful of their challenges because we have been in the same place. That's one thing. I think the other thing that we encourage our companies to do is think big and think about scaling beyond their local, you know, kind of regions or geographies or cities or whatever it may be and think big. Like global success is possible for everybody. With that comes, you know, the necessity to be able to finance these things. So for us, we've gone through a trajectory again this isn't the only way to do it, but we've gone from a very humble route of a family office to now we're on our fourth fund. 
you know, and we've grown essentially over every fund vintage. So right now we're somewhere north of 750 million. But again, our strategy remains to be the same. We're focused on Series A, Series B companies. Um, we're, we have retrenched, as we believe Europe, for us, offers an outsized opportunity set. But again, that doesn't mean you know, that's the right answer for everyone, but for us, that, that's where we're focused. Um, but we also continue to invest globally. So as I said before, we have you know, many different companies in different places. Again, Brazil is one example where we have a number of companies, both in things like e-commerce. Um, we have companies in Japan that's about news aggregation. So places you know, that are not necessarily the, you know, the obvious places. Obviously, we have investments in the US as well. So that comprises you know, how we look at the world and who we are. Uh, the last point about Atomico is that we've also in a very competitive market of venture capital, and I'm, I'm sure that will happen everywhere, and it's happening at least in Europe, is that the differentiation of who we are. So how we thought about it is to build a fairly robust team of uh, partners who are full-time partners, but their role is more operational in nature. So we have people who helped Uber scale internationally. We have people from Facebook that have been growth hacking for Facebook. So these are people and, and, and maybe non-core skill sets that we're trying to give our portfolio companies an edge, an advantage by offering these resources as something that comes with Atomico on top of our capital. So that's us. But um, that hopefully will set some context in terms of what we would like to talk about today. Sorry. Um, that we believe is the golden age for global technology investment. And in fact, we believe we are approaching the cusp of the greatest inflection point that we have ever seen. Two things in particular puts us on that cusp. First, technology is approaching an inflection point as a category. And second, we believe that tech world outside of the valley is reaching an inflection point. So let's start with technology as a category. It's clear that the corporate world has changed massively in the last 10 years. We're familiar with the world's biggest tech companies, but they're also the biggest company in the, in the world, full stop. The five largest listed companies are now all VC-backed digital businesses. And they have a combined market cap of about $2.3 trillion on any given day. But we think this, this is just the beginning. As technology disrupts transport, food, financial services, health, real estate, and on and on, all the new value is going to be created by companies with technology at the core. This disruption hasn't been by accident. It's been driven by a set of deep technology trends with exponential growth. In the last 24 months, we've added more computer power than in all of history. And we've added half a billion smartphones in that same period. In the next five years, there'll be 30 billion connected devices as the Internet of Things completes its journey from idea to reality. Artificial intelligence is now also at a tipping point. In the next 10 years, AI will be the most important technology on the planet. It's now possible for computers to teach themselves to reach superhuman performance, from computer games to identification of things like cancer. Nothing will hold this back. The smartest entrepreneurs are combining all these trends. More devices, more computing power, more deep technology like IoT, the cloud, artificial intelligence. 
It's being applied to disrupt more sectors across the world. That's why we believe that in the next 10 to 20 years, the most valuable company in every single sector will be a tech company. And most of these companies haven't even been found yet. That's an inflection point in technology. What about the inflection point for technology outside of Silicon Valley? So given that Silicon Valley has been around for half a century, it's easy to forget how young the ecosystem is outside of California. It's only emerged after the crash of 2000. But confusing youth with weakness would be a mistake. When Atomical was started 10 years ago, very few people believed that regions such as Europe or Asia could produce multiple technology companies worth billions of dollars. Since 2003, we've seen nearly 200, 200 billion plus billion dollar plus companies formed outside of the valley. In that same period in the valley, there are roughly 91 billion dollar outcomes. So that gives you a sense of the scale and the possibility of the world outside of the valley. And our view is that this is nothing compared to what will happen in the next 10 years. So let's take something we know a little bit you know, better than, and than most, which is Europe, which is again a non-core, non-valley kind of emerging tech ecosystem. We think of Europe tech ecosystem like a company. If you did, you'd say it achieved product market fit as all the ingredients of, for success, it has proven traction, and is ready to grow and take off. When we look around at the generation of European entrepreneurs, they are far more ambitious using technology to take on global problems than their predecessors. And they're having an impact. There have been $44 billion companies found in Europe since Skype's foundation. Just last year, Supercell, which is an Atomico-backed portfolio company, became Europe's first $10 billion company, founded since 2000. Here's the thing. Our view is that what we've seen in Europe's tech hubs will be played out in hubs all over the world, including here. And in fact, the signs are that the Middle East is right at the point of the achieving that product market fit in a way, and it's ready to scale in the same way that Europe has done previously. Let's pause for a second and take time to talk a little bit about macro landscapes. So the events, if you look back in the last 18 months, we've had turmoil in Chinese equity markets, we've had crash in oil prices, we've had Brexit, we had Trump. You know, these are things we simply can't escape. Uh, but our view is that the ups and downs of the public market or political surprises like Brexit or Trump have very little impact on long-term development of tech. Moments that may feel like a bump in the road in the short term, when you step back, they simply become irrelevant. So I remember, in fact, in 08, with the financial crisis, that online consumer spending completely flatlined. Everyone panicked. Everyone thought the party was over. It was 2000 all over again. Let's see. So, but when you look at the long term, even a crisis of this level couldn't slow down the growth of technology. The trends powering tech are long-term and irreversible. They will create hundreds of billions of dollars of value outside of Silicon Valley over the next 10 years. And in that time, we truly believe regions like Europe and MENA will produce a company on the scale of a young Google or a young Facebook. We do believe that, and that's why we are in business. We also have the ingredients. It's just a matter of time. 
So let's move on now and try to put in context a little bit about how we arrived at this point in technology. Basically, from a mere sector to a globally transformative element or power, so to say. Uh, talked a little bit about the dominance of tech in the public markets, but looking at only public markets does not tell the whole story. In fact, what we're seeing is that many of the world's most important companies are continuing to stay private for a much longer time. Look at those category winners like Uber and Airbnb. They're still private, with all the value going mostly to private investors. Facebook and his amazing home run as a company, it's only most valuable, you know, it's one of the most valuable companies of all time, but if you're a public investor, it's only up about three and a half times in the markets. Whereas compared to returns for a private investor, you know, for some it's over a thousand times. That's why as a venture capital investor, we're at least very excited about the opportunity that lies ahead. So one reason why so much value is being created in private markets is simply the speed at which these tech companies are now moving and growing. Multi-billion dollar acquisitions are happening faster from tech giants, but also non-tech incumbents like GM, GE, Walmart, Unilever. These players are all coming in the market and, and participating, both as investors and as acquirers. And the, and, and so those days that stay independent, so the companies that stay independent are reaching 10 billion plus in valuations quicker than ever before. So Snapchat is a good example. It opened a trading at $25 billion market cap, getting to that point in less than six years. It's expected to hit 1 billion in revenue this year, and it's still throwing off a loss. In 14, that number was essentially zero. So these companies are just, they're rocket ships. This is what it looks like when technology cycles compress. So just, you know, I guess a little bit of bragging rights here. So we'll take you through something about, you know, uh, Supercell. But Atomical, we've been lucky enough to witness some of this firsthand. And Supercell shows what happens when you catch the right trend and win the hearts of consumers. It's a small Finnish game studio. It's fastest, one of the fastest growing companies ever. But not only that, you know, some people like to dismiss tech sector as full of unprofitable and unsustainable businesses. But it's clear that winners can generate real cash for those who are able to see beyond the status quo. The inherent operational leverage of technology allows for truly attractive economics. Supercell achieved this with under 200 employees. But of course, there's the other side of the coin and that is the pace of innovation has brought down giants. These companies have either ceased to exist or have missed out on hundreds of billions of dollars of opportunity because they could not keep up. Blockbuster, of course, missed online video streaming. Nokia and Blackberry missed a smartphone wave. Oracle and SAP were slow to the cloud. And Yahoo missed, well, they kind of missed everything. As a result, these names are case studies in what happens when a company fails to innovate at the pace of their most aggressive competitors. It's the pace of technology innovation that has helped us help to reduce the average lifespan of a company on the S&P 500 index to its shortest ever level, down from over 60, year, 60 years to just 18. 
Over the next decade, more than 50% of the companies on that list will churn off at current rates of change. And what's interesting is that this doesn't just apply to companies from older industries, it's also first and second generation tech companies that are compelled to react to technology cycles with the same degree of urgency. But fading away is not inevitable just because you're an incumbent. Microsoft is a great example of a company that has had struggles but is now again seen as an exciting innovator by the public and investors alike. After missing mobile almost completely, Satya, the CEO, has breathed new life into the firm. He's delivered visionary talks, driving Microsoft's focus towards areas like cloud, augmented reality, and of course artificial intelligence, generating results with the share, with the share price reflecting that clearly. In fact, Microsoft is up nearly four times since its low point in 2009. That's more than Facebook post-IPO. So it's clear that technology cycles are making it increasingly challenging to maintain the status quo as an executive today. We actually believe a whole new mindset is required to survive this world of accelerating change from every business leader. So assume that my company will go to zero in 10 years. Find me several new business models to replace it. Big company CEO. Now you might think that this quote, which we think sums up the situation very nicely, comes from a leader of an industri industrial company, an incumbent, manufacturer, offline retailer. Oops. Let's go back to that. There you go. Okay, so, no it isn't. It's Larry Page, who's the CEO of Alphabet Google, and widely considered one of the most innovative companies around. It's the constant push for bold bets on innovation that lead Google to buy DeepMind, or Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook to spend $22 billion on WhatsApp, a company that had virtually negligible revenues, or $1 billion on Instagram when it just had 20 million users, or spend $2 billion on Oculus, a company that was just coming out of Kickstarter. They realize that all around them are potential existential threats to their core business, and that in order to stay ahead, they need to make bold moves to skate where the puck is going, not wait for the ball to come to them. But what we've seen so far is just the beginning. This is truly an exciting time to be a tech founder or an investor. We believe we're just at the beginning and there's plenty left to play for in terms of value. We share this view from Sam Altman at Y Combinator, arguably one of the world's most successful and influential startup incubators, that the most valuable company of all time has not yet been found. So all this potential is enabled by the most powerful toolkit we've ever had at our disposal. We like to think of the toolkit in three categories. One is changing behaviors. That means as consumers and businesses, we're embracing new technologies more willingly. Next is business models. So proven monetization models that turn great ideas into real businesses. And last but not least, the technology building blocks. The specific technologies that drive disruption, whether that's familiar tech as mobile or the cloud, or the next frontier like Internet of Things, or artificial intelligence. 
individually, each is a powerful force, but combined, these trends change entire industries. Entrepreneurs and those who are very successful have taken mobile, location tech, marketplace, and to turn transport, food, accommodation industries upside down. Our view is that no industry will be untouched by the force of these trends, and hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap will be reallocated from incumbents to disruptors as they do. So, against the backdrop, we wanted to give a quick overview of some of the important trends that are now emerging within the tech landscape. The first one is artificial intelligence. It's truly a sea change. Jeff Bezos thinks so, so it must be right, but there's many other people who all actually feel that way as well. Um, and as an example, Amazon, they put a thousand people onto their speech recognition and AI-based eco product, echo product. But you know, why now? Well, because data is being captured at exponential rates, compute power is massive, advances in learning models like improvements in algorithms, these are all things that are happening today. And by that and with that, we are able to capture some of the awesome trends of things like AI. So Sundar, who is also the CEO of Google's core business, also agrees. Simply being a digital first or mobile first company today isn't enough. Business leaders have to look further ahead as the pace of change quickens. If you look at every single one of the top five tech giants, each one is committing to AI in a major way. When we say committing, this means thousands of people and billions of dollars into AI. So no small number. And we're already seeing the impact of artificial intelligence. To give just three examples, we have seen dramatic leaps forward in the quality of voice recognition, machine translation, and image classification and recognition. The step change in performance in these, in these areas helps create new market demand as consumers come to realize just how useful they have now become in the form of Siri or Amazon Echo. The market does not specifically demand AI, but the market is seeking new ways to solve long-standing problems, whether that is how to solve a global health problem or how to sustainably feed a planet that's going to reach 10 billion by 2050. This is where AI can be super helpful. It's also important to note that the application of artificial intelligence are not always clear, and they are not always about generating new revenue. This is a quote from uh, Lee Sedo after he lost a landmark series in the game of Go against AlphaGo, which is an application that was developed by Google's DeepMind. Lee describes how AlphaGo played a brilliant but non-obvious, non-human key move. Similarly, AI is being applied in many non-obvious ways across businesses. Google has already recovered the $400 million acquisition cost for DeepMind by applying its machine learning to making its server farms cool more efficiently, and it's reduced costs apparently by around 40% for them. The possible applications of AI are still being discovered as we speak. AI is also being brought into the home. Advances in voice recognition are enabling devices like Amazon Echo. Just as one example, rather than picking up a newspaper, or even browsing their phone, more and more people are now receiving news briefings 
by asking Alexa for them. This frictionless experience has the potential to change how we consume all kinds of content and to create a whole new interface with technology. Uh, another transformational trend is virtual reality, augmented reality, VR, AR. While simple applications of AR such as Pokemon Go and Snapchat's filters have grabbed headlines, applications of the technology go well beyond this. The desktop to mobile transition is now well established with VR and AR on track to be the next new platforms. Everything is once again up for grabs, whether it's search, communication, advertising, commerce, uh, we'll work to solve, these are being, you know, this is work in progress to solve for this in, in the business form. So this creates a whole new opportunity set and is an exciting area. For every one, so uh, as an anecdotal point, for every 1% of digital time that shifts to these interfaces, assuming dollars follow these engagement, it could be worth as much as $2 billion in ad spend, $1 billion in gaming spend, and $20 billion in e-commerce spend. So again, not small numbers. And Internet of Things. By embedding sensors into the build environment, we gain an ability to capture data and measure the physical world, our infrastructure, in ways and at scale that's never been possible before. This ability to collect data is powerful and necessary to create new use cases, but it's not sufficient. This all requires a control layer. Even five years ago, we would have been, we have, we had to use primitive means, like rule-based systems to do so, if we could at all. But now comes the era of AI. The combination of IoT and AI has the potential to dramatically improve the way infrastructure is planned, i.e. making sitting decisions based on data, built, using data to determine the optimal build process, and manage, whether it's in terms of how a building is operated or how its occupancy yield is managed. It will be critical in helping city infrastructure to run more efficiently, especially in the key municipal services that happen in the background. So things people don't notice like water management, safety, energy, parking, etc. And the future of transport is a theme that's been getting a lot of headlines. We think this is especially interesting as the second and third order effects this will have in the ecosystem, in addition to the obvious seismic effect it has on the auto industry. For example, in media, Again, for every 1% shift in driving time from human to automated, this creates an additional 4 billion hours of time to consume content inside the car. Or in insurance, we've already seen the most advanced OEMs, like Tesla, look at transforming the insurance model by integrating insurance upfront into the cost of a vehicle. China now and represents a very real transformation of how people transport themselves within cities. In fact, Chinese cities are already seeing the traffic congestion uh, being alleviated thanks to bike sharing, and really importantly, municipalities are investing into new infrastructure to accommodate trends like this. And the most exciting thing is that we're seeing teams build companies leveraging these disruptive trends that we've talked about right now and right here. And all over the world, it's happening. You know, and that's why we're talking about it here, and that's why WAMDA is here, and that's why Atomico exists full stop. Um, 
MENA is producing regional champions with huge ambitions that are achieving impressive levels of success. Companies such as Kareem, Sook, Fetcher are great examples of this. What is more, we're also seeing that MENA is becoming a home and a testing ground for world-leading and groundbreaking innovation like Hyperloop One or Ehang's electric aircraft. So I want to close with a few thoughts on the role that investors will play in helping to capture the opportunities from the global march of technology. Our own experience in Europe shows that a strong local investor base, especially at the early stages, is absolutely critical to the health of an emerging tech hub and to support the growth of a successful breakout company. The role that Fadi and the whole team at Wanda Capital is playing in securing its position as the investor of choice for the region is going to pay huge dividends, not only to local tech ecosystems as a whole, but to all those who are involved, from founders to limited partners that join them in that journey. And with that, that is my presentation. Thank you. Um, let's say we buy into this is like a special for Sure. Like the biggest one has in the building. But if you're an LPN, you're doing timing matters. And a lot of the names, this is a question I'd ask earlier, a lot of names that are on that page and on that board that Bombay's missing are the sexy personal businesses. So would you argue that that theme has played out and that the next wave of ones that we talked about in AI and the health and logistics and other harder sectors will come about in a time frame that today's GP could capitalize on? Or is this a longer, longer stage game? Uh, very good question. I think, you know, I mean, I contend with that question as for a living. So I think there's many ways to answer that. I think one is in a very specific level. It depends on the type of business that we're talking about. Some of these businesses that are consumer oriented and, you know, whatever they may be, I think the velocity of growth really depends on adoption in many cases and the capital requirement. Those are two things that, that kind of impact the velocity. I mean, in terms of, you know, have they played out and are the next, I guess the question is, is it going to take longer for the next cohort of companies to, to really play themselves out? Well, I think they've been playing themselves out beneath the noticeable layer of what, you know, a, a normal, you know, interested party would see. And that's why venture capital is like beneath that, you know, beneath the covers, incubating, funding, you know, mentoring these emerging sets of uh, a cohort of companies that are coming. So I think you will continue to see that. It's just that when you see it, I mean, it depends, right? If there's a GP, you, I see, you know, we have 80 plus portfolio companies of which we maybe talk about, I don't know, 15 on any given day. Why? Because they are fund drivers and they've emerged. But in the process of birth, it's very complicated and at times very ugly and not a straight line and some take longer than others. But, you know, I think that you, if, so long as you have a set of cohorts c consistently, you will always have an emergence of something. Now, there's definitely trends that happen, and, and I think it's fair to your point that, you know, sometimes like the, the smartphone era, you know, some people argue that the smartphone kind of revolution has, has kind of calmed down. So, 
you know, people are, especially if you look at the Valley, people are looking for things to put money behind. And that's, you know, that's created a very big interest in enterprise SaaS. Why? Because, well, enterprise SaaS, to your point, takes longer, uh, but it has more recurrence and revenue. So, you know, between these like gigantic trends of say smartphone, and I talked about whether it's VR, AR, you know, I mean, this may take a little bit of time as a platform, not as fast as maybe the smartphone, but these things will eventually come in. In the middle, there's always room for companies to come about in different sectors. So I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good question because it's not very easy to answer in one single swing. But one, I think it's company dependent. And I think, you know, it, you will have cohorts that are emerging in any given environment, you know, regardless of them taking time. Some will emerge faster, some will not, but they will always be there. Sure. Yeah, but I, you know, I think equally, if you look at the acquisition strategy of Facebook, which is a very easy one to follow, you know, most of the the development of these new products and initiatives are by startups, right? And in a, in effect, they're either acquiring the business or the talent pool that's doing that, and they are then kind of merging and fusing that with their existing organization to continue to evolve. Because as a big organization, you develop legacy habits of how you make money. And that's very hard to break, is I think what we believe, at least. And, and startups, you know, it's outsourcing research and development. That's what th this whole exercise is about. And that innovation comes about because you're not part, you're looking at it on a complete white sheet of paper. At least that's what we believe. And I think that's what venture capital's function is in the, in the sense of, you know, we're financing R&D projects and hopefully these things will either become, take on a life of its own as a platform, as a big business, or they will be fused into a Microsoft. You know, I mean, Minecraft was bought by, you know, there's also a, a, a line out the door, I think, of people who are being acquired by Microsoft beyond the headlines of the billion dollar acquisitions that we read about. There's a lot of talent acquisition going on, sub, you know, whatever, $300 million type deals that, you know, don't get printed and we don't read about so often, but that's happening a lot. And so that's, I think, what I think the startup ecosystem will continue to kind of, you know, pave the way and, and the path for. Thank you. Any other questions? Um, so I guess I do, I do have a question myself, uh, a couple. Um, so when it comes to, um, I just want to kind of zoom in a little bit on Tom, I know we're talking big picture and what's sure. with regards to, since, since we have a lot of LPs here, um, since Atomico has a bit of a wider scope than say someone with a bit more of a narrow scope in the valley, um, and whereas those ones out there are more dependent on outlier returns, um, 
what, what is your view on that in terms of how uh, how is the front performance from Atomico across the portfolio? Do you really kind of depend on? Our fund performance is fantastic, by yeah, the way, no, just, no. just to be clear. It's really good. If, please talk to me later if you're in a limited part. How many supercells no. do you have? Um, how many supercells do we have? Not many. I mean, uh, so I think this is the thing, right? Like, the Valley has its own kind of return profile. Well, the U.S. has its own return profile. I mean, I talk, I mean, if you were to flip it on its head, we talked about the 200, you know, billion plus you know, valued companies that have emerged outside of the Valley, but equally the 91, if you look at the market cap, it's pretty substantial. So, you know, that's kind of the flip side of that coin as well. Um, for Atomico, I think, you know, the reason why, well, our performance as, you know, we still look for outliers in its own right, like Supercell is one of them. There's been, you know, quite a few in Europe that have not been maybe $10 billion outcomes, but have been in the range of a billion to say, you know, three or five billion. There's companies like Klarna that are in the payment space that have grown from startup over the last, you know, whatever, eight years to now being worth, you know, a rumored three billion or so. And, and they have very significant revenues and, and they have a profitable business in the payment space. So there are those, and Spotify is another one, you know, there's whatever. I mean, if you look at Zalando and you consider Rocket Internet as a, as a cohort of, of something like this. So there is those. I think the reality is the, pr the pricing at a Series A, and to be very specific, reflects that. So if you get into, you know, like I was talking to somebody about this over lunch, but the cost of running a business equivalent in the valley by sheer price that you have to pay for engineers versus a business that has engineers in, say, Tallinn, which is in Estonia, which is where Skype had all its development, you know, engineering power, like, it's like one-tenth. So by that, what it flows through is that the price of, of what you pay for an opportunity, you know, as an investor, should be aligned with what the upside represents. So still we're looking for, you know, as an investor, we're looking for, you know, the 20, 30, 50x, 100x outcomes. That's what we do, except what the, the path that we've taken in terms of the technical element is that we've said there's a lot less follow-on funding. So I think you'll see it happen maybe here and other, other kind of places and uh, hubs, tech hubs in Europe like Berlin or Stockholm, they see the same problem, which is after a Series A, where does the capital come from? And so we've taken the path of trying to self-solve for that and saying we're still focused on Series A and Series B type deals, but we can also be the Series B and C and D follow-on capital. That's why we've decided to go for larger size fund um, so that we can follow on on these opportunities rather than one, Silicon Valley investors coming in and taking a very juicy part of the J curve where they get massive amounts of growth where all the risk is maybe perhaps outsized on our shoulders. So we want to be able to capture the value that we're creating for ourselves by ourselves. So I think that's, we're still in the business of looking for outliers, but we believe also in the next 10 years, the market in Europe will give birth to more $10 billion outcomes such as Supercell, for example.